Welcome to Effortless Swimming, the podcast for swimmers, triathletes, and coaches. Join Australian swim coach Brenton Ford as he reveals the latest techniques and information to improve your swimming. Let's dive right in. Hi, this is Brenton Ford from Effortless Swimming. Welcome to today's podcast. My guest today is someone who I've had on the podcast before, but I haven't had on for a while, and we were talking the other day about developing power speed and strength in swimming and, and why it's important. So I wanted to get a friend of mine, Wayne Goldsmith, on the podcast. So Wayne's not only worked with Swimming Australia and Triathlon Australia, he's also worked with a lot of the top um, swimmers and their coaches from all around the world, not only Australia. He was talking with a lot of the US coaches in the recent Pan Pack Championships, which, which were held up on the Gold Coast where Wayne lives. And uh, he came in with a lot of uh, good ideas and a lot of knowledge from that as well. So uh, listening on this podcast, we go into a lot of detail about not only speed, strength and power in swimming, but uh, we also talk about different types of training methods, uh, different tools that you can use in your workouts. Uh, and we also talk a lot about mindset. So listening to today's podcast, I hope you enjoy it. Here's Wayne Goldsmith. I've been in swimming and coaching since the early 90s. There was a range of strange coincidences which led to me being involved. I was working in Sydney, believe it or not, in a bank from the time I left school in 1978 until the late 80s. And through one circumstance or another, I ended up being involved in the Sydney to Melbourne ultramarathon, a run that used to go along the roads from Sydney all the way to Melbourne, a distance of around a 1,000 kilometres. And as part of preparing a runner to complete that task, I was reading a lot of information about sports science and the importance of things like hydration and eating the right food and the importance of electrolytes and a whole range of things. And I realised I was completely in the dark and inappropriately prepared to help an athlete achieve running around the block let alone running from Sydney to Melbourne. And I started to get really interested in performance and sports science. And unfortunately, I liked fooling around a little bit too much and doing the wrong things at high school. And I'd failed high school so badly that I didn't qualify to get into a sports science or a physical education course. So it took me about two years from that realisation that this was an amazing thing to be involved in to getting into the University of Canberra's sports science program in the early 90s and I had a choice like a lot of people do when you go to university to either work in the bar or try to find some work around uni or to find some coaching work and through a whole range of coincidences I ended up working in a gym that gym had a swimming pool they were looking for an assistant coach and the head coach said look you don't have any real background as a swimming coach I'll give you a crack at it. I'll help to put you through a training program. I really need somebody. And it all went from there. And I had this incredibly fortunate set of circumstances where I was working under a very experienced senior coach, a lady called Carol Gathercole. Her husband was a guy called Terry Gathercole, who was an Olympian and a former world record holder and also the head coach of breaststroke at the Australian Institute of Sport. And he was also looking for some help. So I had this amazing situation where from working in a bank in Sydney to six months later working under an experienced head swimming coach and working under a senior coach at the Institute of Sport while studying sports science. 
And in that environment, I also got approached by a triathlon club called the Bilbies. who was still a strong group in Canberra, still a strong triathlon group. And I was working with those guys as well. So I was living the dream that I was able to study, coach my own group of triathletes, coach my own age group team, and be tutored by a couple of very senior, very experienced coaches. And after three years of doing that, I fluked or somehow just managed a miraculous opportunity to be the head of sports science and sports medicine for Swimming Australia from the time that we won the bid to host the 2000 Olympics, then leading into Sydney. And after that, it's all been a bit of a blur, just nonstop swimming, coaching and triathlon for the last 25 years. Awesome. So, I mean, you've worked with some of the best swimmers and some of the best triathletes and coaches uh, in Australia and also overseas. And I mean, what um, I mean, what we what we're going to talk about on today's podcast is how to develop speed, strength, and power in the water. And I guess how you've I mean, what you've seen these elite guys do to develop that in the water. But what do you see the um, the biggest difference between those at the very elite end of the sport? compared to those who are uh, maybe just below it and not quite uh, getting to that very top 0.1% um, of you know, the, the cream of the crop for, for whether it's triathlon or swimming? What's, what's the, the real difference? Yeah, it's an excellent question, Brendan. I think about it a lot. And to me, it comes down to uh, goal setting. And traditionally, we've talked about goal setting in terms of long-term goals, medium-term goals, or short-term goals, and my observation of doing goal-setting that way over such a long period of time is most of the time it doesn't work, and I think it's because even a short-term goal, which might be one week, one month, one season, even a short-term goal is very, very difficult for most people to get their head around. They might say, well, my short-term goal is to improve my freestyle, but what does that actually look like right now on this lap or when I'm holding this kickboard or when I'm doing this 100 of pull. What we notice about the great athletes is that they think almost in terms of what we would describe as micro goals or mini goals, or I call them moment goals. They think about what have I got to do right now on this turn, this lap, this kick, this stroke, what do I have to do right now in this moment to ensure I achieve my goals? So... A swimmer might say, look, I want to swim for Australia. I want to make the World Masters Games. I want to swim and do really well in Kona, in the Ironman. It could be any of those things. And they're wonderful dreams to have, and they're usually very long-term in nature. What we notice the great people do, and the people who achieve their goals and, and achieve those objectives, they go, what have I got to do on this lap right now to qualify to swim in Kona? What have I got to do on this lap right now to break the world record further down the line? What is it that I can do physically or be more connected mentally? What can I do technically or tactically? What can I get out of this moment and this lap that's going to help me get where I want to go? And what we see with, with the, the, the great athletes that – Whatever you give them as a coach, so you might give them a 400 and say, guys, here's a 400 warm-up, and the great ones will grab that 400 and will absolutely milk every tiny opportunity that they can 
out of that 400 to help them achieve their goals and realize their potential. So look, I think out of all the things I've learned, that's really it. Yeah, and thinking back to when I've spoken with guys guys or girls who are at that level, they all, at least when they're teaching, so for example, I had Mitch Patterson, the Australian and Commonwealth record holder for the 100 fly, um, coaching at one of our freestyle clinics on the weekend, and he was taking the, the guys through Streamline, and he was saying that every single time he's starting or turning, he's looking to be in the tightest possible position with his streamline. And um, you hear that with Michael Phelps when he's um, put, uh, kicking, or sorry, pushing off a wall, he's got to get to 15 metres every single time. And, I mean, I've heard it with Ryan Lochte as well when he's training for his breaststroke. His one thing for that is when he's doing breaststroke, he's always going hard for it because he, d- he doesn't quite enjoy it. But that's his one cue is he's looking to get the most out of all the breaststroke training that he's doing. So he just goes fast for it. So it's, um, it's a really common thing that you hear among those guys and girls who are at the top. So that's um, you know, it's, it's an interesting one. And, and it means you've got to be switched on every single session and every single lap it's like uh you know you're focusing for focusing intently for four or five hours a day for however long you're training but with that goal in the back of your mind about what you what you really want to achieve yeah it's true and uh, the other way i've heard it put uh really brilliantly last year was i was lucky that i had the opportunity to go and spend a little bit of time with the u.s swim team just before they competed in pan packs and uh, it was one of the greatest honours that I've had in my professional life to be allowed by uh, their national head coach, a guy called Frank Bush, to come in and observe Lochte and Missy Franklin, Katie Ledecky, Phelps, and and those guys all training together and, and seeing how they went about doing what they're doing. And I had a chance to talk to David Marsh from Auburn about what he's observed in Lochte and what he's observed in some of the great athletes. And he said it's a choice. And we talked about the way that, that Marsh and I were kicking it around. He said, look, that in any given situation, when the opportunity to do things the easy way or the hard way is available, a great athlete will always do it the hard way. And the way that Marshy described it was to say, look, at 5 a.m., the athlete has a choice. Easy way, hit the snooze button. Hard way, get out of bed, pick up the bag that you packed the night before, go and have something to eat and wake up your parents or get in the car yourself and get to work out early. Easy way, hard way. And every athlete, every swimmer, triathlete, masters athlete, they've all been given that choice. And some will go the easy way, some will go the hard way. You get to the pool, easy way, sit around, talk to your friends, talk about what was on TV last night, hard way, stretch, set up your training area, get your kit bag over to the end of the pool, and ask coach if you can get in and do a couple of hundred easy before anyone else does to work on something. Easy way, hard way. And again, what I've noticed with the great athletes is that by habitually taking the hard way and choosing to do it the hard way, the cumulative effect of that over time is they get what they want to get. They get where they want to go. They achieve their goals. And that's another, and that's a, to me, it's about teaching athletes when they've got a choice coming up, which is the easy way, which is the hard way, and getting them to understand the cumulative effect of that where success becomes a lifestyle choice, that will make all the difference. And 
And again, th- these are not these are concepts that have been around for a long, long time. I would think hundreds, maybe thousands of years in different areas of endeavour. It hasn't really changed that much. It's just teaching athletes to be able to apply these concepts to everything they do in training and recovery. And uh, and going on to developing speed, strength, and power in swimming. Let's um, let's start with what what that really means. So, I mean, they're you know the great words. They sound good, but how how does that actually translate into swimming? What what does it mean for the average uh, master swimmer or, or triathlete? Well, that's a, in terms of the easy way, hard way concept, the the choice means, for example, if you're pushing off a wall, you have a choice. You can breathe on the first stroke, the second stroke, or the third stroke in freestyle or fly. Now, you've got a choice when you come to flags at the end of a repeat to breathe three, four, five times coming into the turn and make it slow to almost rest on the wall with your feet and to push off in any old sort of a shape rather than streamline. Uh, you've got a choice when you come in towards the finish of every repeat to breathe three, four, five times inside the flags or look at the bottom of the pool, drive to the wall with a great kick and finish with a nice full stroke, head forward and hips high on the wall in every finish. And Ian, you've got that choice. And a lot of people will make excuses saying it's about fitness or it's about experience or it's about fatigue. Well, it's really not. It, it really, the difference, I don't think you see anyone who's incredibly fatigued to the point where they can't not breathe on the last three strokes of freestyle that's going to make any real big difference to how fatigued they are. If you're fatigued, you can still say, yes, I'm sure I'm tired, I'm fatigued, but I refuse to breathe on those last two, three, four strokes, and I choose to do it the way that I know will give me the results that I want. So in terms of the practical application for swimmers and triathletes and masters athletes, it doesn't matter what level you're at. When you're given a choice of doing things the easy way or the hard way, I think kicking is another great example that it's really easy going down when you're starting to do some kick is to not think about rhythm or not to be breathing with real control or to lift your head up too high. There's a whole range of things that can interfere with the effectiveness and efficiency of your kick. Or you can choose to look at the bottom, keep your hips nice and high, kick with a constant flowing rhythm and breathe consistently all the way through. And, again, that's a choice. It's not a coaching issue, a talent issue, a money issue or an equipment issue. That's a personal choice on what outcome you want from your training session. And as a coach, it's such a pleasure to coach athletes who make that choice every time they're the ones who are there 10 15 minutes if not earlier than that to every session and they're going through the their warm-up exercises their stretches and they're the ones who are ready to go on time and they're keen to know what the set is and they're you know keen to uh, keen to work hard and and really work the turns and uh, and work on their technique so it's um, and i'm sure you'd know as a coach as well that it's just so much easier working with those guys and girls and um that's what i think a lot of coaches are you know that they really know when they've got an athlete like that and they they really look forward to going to the pool or going out to the track or on the road to um to work with them it is wonderful isn't it? they're the they're the athletes that make it worthwhile that the other morning i was working with a cross-country group and we're big age range. Youngest one was about nine. The oldest one was 17. 
and we were doing efforts, 30-second efforts. And so it was a, a type of session that coaches all over the world do. It wasn't anything particularly special, but we warmed up and stretched and did a few drills. And then the actual set was 12 30-second efforts followed by a minute of recovery, and we went through the set. And there was one little girl who was 11 and not a particularly experienced runner and not a particularly talented runner, to be honest. But as I was getting towards the end of each 30-second effort, I'd go, come on, guys, that's 25, 26, 27, 28. And so giving them a five-second countdown. What I noticed with her every time she had the five seconds is that she put her head down and she just went and she tried to get every millimetre of distance from those last five seconds, whereas the bulk of the team, when they heard it was five seconds to go, you could see them almost start to slow down because they thought, well, it's getting towards the end and I've done enough, and they wound down. And I I looked at her and thought, you'd train her for nothing. You would seriously coach her for free because seeing somebody – who desperately wants to get everything they can out of the opportunity, just loves doing the work, is such a thrill as a coach. And the half of coaching is how do I get that type of attitude spread right across the whole group that we work with? I think that's the holy grail for all coaches is to get everyone that you work with thinking like that. Yeah, we had a um, – we ran a sort of hell week with the – with my squad a couple of weeks ago and we had a session that was, that was kind of like that where the whole group pulled together. And I think the real difference was that we, um, we did the warm up, and then I, I got them out and I said, I asked them, does anyone need to go anywhere after this? Has anyone got a dinner or someone they've got to be by quarter past eight? And, and no one did. So I said, all right, so if you're going to start the set, then you're going to finish this set. We're all, we're in this together and no one's going to back off or, or slack off uh, during this set. You're going to go through the whole thing, and you know, if anyone slacks off, then you have to pull up the pull up that person, and it's on you to to be responsible for that. So it was from memory, it was something like sixteen fifties dive max walk back. So sixteen all out efforts with no recovery in between. They were just walking back, and they're on about. 3.30 or four minutes or something. So it was quite a bit of rest, but a lot of lactate build-up. It was just one of the hardest sessions I think the, the squad's done. And um, for the whole session, there wasn't one swimmer that dropped off more than two or three seconds because of lack of effort. It was if they were dropping off at all, it was just because they couldn't physically go any faster. But they pulled through. And then the last 250s, we actually I got them in three in a lane and had them race each other so race side by side and uh and that really finished them finish them off because you know when you're racing like that with someone it's you're not going to um to turn down your, your speed at the 30 meter mark if you're tired you're going to keep pushing so um and it was just it was just awesome to to have such a good session like that and you know you're not, you're not going to be able to do that every single session because you know every session is not going to have that kind of um intensity but you know, when you do have that, I think it, it bonds the, the members of the club or the squad together. And, um, and I mean, I had guys who had swum as teenagers and done some pretty hard sessions like that before. And then they hadn't really swum for five or 10 years and they just started to get back into the water. And then they did that set and they were just, they were over the moon about how happy they were to kind of reach that level of exhaustion. And I think 
have that kind of achievement um, in in the um, sporting arena and just to get that kind of buzz that you get from doing such a, a tough session like that. And they were, they were just so stoked about being able to, um, to do it because it's very rare you get an opportunity like that as an, as an adult, uh, unless you're training with a, a squad and you've got you know, at least a couple of weeks of um, fitness under your belt. Yeah. You know, and I think what you said there is, is spot on. The, the thing I find most exciting about that, Brendan is, is getting excellence and the standard of the squad driven from within the squad. I think if you've got a culture and an environment, a training environment where people are encouraging or pushing or driving each other from the water, it's an incredibly powerful thing to do because, you know, you've got so much expertise as a coach and all the experience that, you know, you yourself personally have got as um, an outstanding master swimmer and as a educator and as a coach, um, you know, the, the things that you've got to offer your team, it takes the same amount of energy and time for you to say, come on, get your elbow up high or get those kicks working uh, with power and rhythm as it does to yell some sort of motivation to them. So the more it's driven from the water, you don't have to worry about standards and attitudes and finishing on the wall and all those things and you can focus on giving all those wonderful bits of information all the great ideas you've got about coaching and increase their rate of learning that's 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 really brilliant isn't it if you can create that environment as a coach where the athletes are insisting and maintaining those standards in the water then that's a very powerful group of athletes yeah absolutely and uh, i think that I think I've spoken about this on the podcast once or twice before, but even just getting your athletes to think about what they're doing and think about why they're doing it. Um, you'd know um, uh, Mac Horton, a 1,500-meter swimmer. He's, he's here in Melbourne. His coach, Craig, he's every single session that uh, if I'm in the, the lanes next to them, every single session at, at the end, Craig will ask Mac a, a question or two or three questions about – uh, how he was pacing his swims, what he needs to work on, what he learned from that session, and it's every single time. And you know, what a what a smart swimmer he's, he's turning out to be because he's been forced to think about what he's doing and why he's doing it and, and where he can find improvement. Isn't it? It's just amazing, isn't it? That there was a time in coaching where you would never do that, wasn't there? There was really that the coach spoke and the athlete followed instructions. How much better is it now? where smart coaches effectively partner with their athletes to get a better solution. Uh, we've got a few surf swimmers in our program on the Gold Coast, and one of the athletes was in a competition a few weeks ago, and he said that he was having some real problems where he was in big surf early on having to dive under waves and how that was causing him. His heart rate was going up too high and he was blowing out and not finishing on at the end of races. And there was a young girl in the next lane who's not a surf swimmer. There's normally one of our girls that just has a lot of fun and she's great to have around, but she's, she's certainly not a, an open water swimmer. And she said to him, she said, oh, why don't you dive to the bottom of the pool a couple of times during your reps and get a feel for that. That might help you be ready for your surf racing. And I didn't think of it. And, the, the surf guy hadn't thought of it, but he was one of our young girls had come up with this idea. So then the repeats became 
on our next set that we were doing a set of 150s and every lap we were asking the swimmers just to dive to the bottom of the pool two meter deep touch the bottom and come back up and i don't know if it's going to work but it was just such a great thing that an idea to challenge the team came from within the swimmer group yeah that's that's awesome and i see that with um the squad that my my dad coaches he for years he's been getting younger swimmers to um coach well so let's say the um swimmers in their early to mid teens to come along once or twice a week and coach the swimmers younger than them so those that are eight and nine years old and not only does it uh, is it great for their development as as people but also to get them to think about their own swimming and their own strokes and um to get them to, to be on that other side of the the pool deck to be there trying to you know, i guess trying to control others or trying to to run a session um it you know gives them great respect for for the coaches when they do get back in and, and they're swimming themselves um but it's just um it, it gives you that that i guess well-rounded um development as a swimmer and and i mean when i started coaching that's when i really started to learn about technique and and what really makes the difference uh, when it comes to you know the the faster swimmers and, and the not so fast swimmers and um it's you know as a swimmer you you go a lot by feel and but it's i, I find your development in terms of your in terms of knowledge of technique it's it's limited to just going by what you're feeling as opposed to what you're seeing in others and the difference uh, in what others are doing and how, and how that changes their speed i think you're right I, well, I, I strongly believe you're right that they often say the best form of learning is teaching and uh, i've got a, a young guy that has just decided to give up swimming he's 18, he's going to university, but he's such a great guy and such a, a positive role model, such a constructive guy to have around the team that we've offered him a chance to transition into coaching. And he said it's never been – he never realised how difficult it is to to point a group of 8, 10, 12 young swimmers in the one direction and get them all doing sessions the way that he knows they need to do it. And um, he said he's just made him aware of not how important the work is, but how important the way you do the work mm. has come. And he had a great phrase, I think. He said, this is a little bit like herding cats. And I said, it's exactly right that that you're very, very fortunate if you're working with a group of athletes that are self-motivated, self-driven, who encourage each other and, and are critical of each other if they're not seeing the level of, effort that needs to be in the in the program they're seeing they're quite happy to pull each other up and say that's not good enough uh that's why young age grouping coaching i think can be very very challenging for young coaches going in because his his way of it was a great again a conversation i've had with him it's amazing you learn from people at all levels that that you get exposed to but uh, his way of expressing it around the team was he said i don't understand why they don't swim the way i used to and because he was one of those guys who was there on time, always contributed, helped clean up, helped to pull the, put the lane ropes on, um, helped the, with the pool covers at the end of training. He's just a guy that a quality human being, a great young man, great set of values, tremendous character. And he's pulling his hair out as a coach because he's looking at these kids going, I don't understand why they just don't do it the way that I did. <laughs> I said, well, now you realize what an exceptional person you are and that how important it is for us 
not just to teach these kids how to swim, but to teach them what training actually looks like and what it's supposed to be. Yeah, and and one even just one small thing that I noticed when I first went from being a, being a swimmer to doing more coaching was just one little thing is aerobic set. So let's say you've got 2100s and they need to be at aerobic uh, pace, aerobic effort. Then, I mean, as a swimmer, I just wanted to work as hard as I poss- possibly could in in every set. So I'd be swimming at 180, 100, yeah, let's say 180 um, beats a minute in terms of my heart rate, when it should have been down around sort of 150, 160. Um, and so now that I, you know, when I realized that, it's like, okay, well, how do I try and get my swimmers to stay at an, an aerobic effort or aerobic heart rate when they're doing those those sessions? And every time we do it, I, you know, I, I tell them, I said, even if you're feeling good, don't push it. This is, you just want to be in this heart rate zone to get the benefit uh, from this set. But even still, they you know they still tend to push it that little bit faster, which is a good thing if you know because they, they like to work hard. But you know that's not the aim of the set. So um, that's just one of the little things that I, I found was um, that I learned, I guess, when I when I began coaching and began to look at the reasons why you're doing different types of sets. Yeah, I think that's it. what you point out there is particularly important, isn't it? We find with triathletes or master swimmers coming in for training once or twice a week, that they've got very, very limited time. Quite often they're incredibly busy. They've got family. They've got study. They've got business. They've got so many other commitments, and they've got one hour. And they want to cram as much work as they possibly can into that one hour. And if you say to them, say, guys, look, I know that's the way you feel, but you've had a really heavy week. You've done a lot of competition. You've got a big week coming up. Just go nice and easy, 65, 70%, nice and relaxed, flowing and rhythmic work. Very, very difficult to convince them that that's what they need at that point in time. But now all we know about athletic performance is it's those recovery sessions where you're just managing your pace, you're developing rhythm, you're in a real aerobic space that is so critically important, not just for that session, but because they allow you to reduce the effects of that residual fatigue so that the next session you come in, you can blast. If you need to go, then you can. But, yeah, you're dead right, isn't it? It's a, it's a tough lesson to learn that you just can't go, go, go every time, every session. Well, that, that sort of reminds me this morning I was speaking to Sam Hume, who's um, one of the best age group triathletes in Australia, and he's, uh, he did the Melbourne Ironman last weekend. And he was the quickest age grouper there and just had an absolute ripper of a race. And he was chatting this morning and he said that two weeks ago or two weeks before the, the Ironman, he was, he was sick as a dog. He was coming to the pool, he was getting through the warm-up and then he just couldn't, couldn't keep going. He was just coughing, could hardly breathe and um, he wasn't sure if he was going to be right for the race. So pretty much from two weeks out up until about you know, a couple, couple days out from the actual race, he hardly trained. He just sort of did the bare minimum to keep his feel for the water and um, just keep the, the legs ticking over on the bike and in the run. But he just did – basically had no intensity whatsoever. Um, yet he had one of the best races of the day uh, there and one of the best races of his life. And uh, he just said – it just goes to show you how important it is to recover. If, you, if you've done the hard work, then you know just ease up on yourself and don't try and um, – 
don't try and put too much pressure on yourself and don't don't try and cram every little last bit of training in the, the two weeks before. Just uh, just trust yourself and and let your body recover so you're right to go for that race. And that's such an important lesson, isn't it? If we only we could encourage more athletes to believe in that. I've got a young triathlete that I coach and she's an amazing young athlete and tough and committed and I think as I said to somebody last week, if I asked her to run to Perth in a pair of thongs, she'd do it. And <laughs> there's her work ethic is incredible. The the commitment to training and to the work she does with me, and she's got a separate cycling coach. The work that she does with him is just amazing, and I'm astounded at how hard she works. But as it is with so many people, her greatest strength is her biggest weakness, and it's ve- we found it next to impossible to get her to have a day off. And in the end, I've, I've got to drop a couple of names here that I got on to our good friend Jamie Turner, who I think's probably the best triathlon coach going around anywhere at the moment. And I got JT to send her a note, which basically said the greatest breakthrough that she could possibly make is not in training harder or more often, but is in resting and recovering more and being as committed to a recovery program as she is with a training program. And I'm hoping that that message is sunk through because if you've got enough experienced people telling you that that's so essential to get the performances that you're hoping to achieve, and hopefully people start to listen. But it is a difficult message to sell, particularly to endurance athletes who will see that the secret to success is work. And there's no doubt it's a huge part of what they do. They have to be able to work hard and do it consistently, but man, recovery and regeneration is just as important that um a guy i know and, and who you'd know as well so a friend of mine i won't um don't want to name him here but he um he was a uh olympic medalist and he uh did really well in olympic games not pretty recently and then the next two or three years after that he you know he was looking to to make the next olympic games after that but he was um he was actually he was doing something like twelve sessions a week. It was like nine or ten swim, and then you know two or three gym. And uh, he was actually going back during the day back to his house and and doing extra sessions on top of what his coach was giving him. And so he didn't, and he wasn't telling his coach about it either. So he'd get to the pool, he'd be he'd be buggered, he'd be wrecked for the for that session. Um, and his, his coach just couldn't quite put his finger on it. And um, you know, for the next two or three years, he was. Um, his performance just dropped. He was number one in Australia, and he was top top three in the world. And then he was uh, was struggling to come you know, to come on the podium uh, for that event for the next couple of years because he was just wanted to do well so badly that he that he was trying to fit that that extra in that um, that his coach hadn't given him, and it just uh, it just sort of ruined him after that. And I mean, he's. Um, He's he, and he, so he didn't he didn't make that that next Olympic Olympic Games and he just kind of fell by the wayside and it, same sort of thing it's just um it's a, it's a great trait to have to want to work hard but then it's uh, it's tough to teach those athletes to be smart and to recover and um and see um I guess see it from the viewpoint that we as coaches get to see yeah dead right and there I don't know that there's a lot of those lessons are taught all that widely. I think it's easy to talk about about training loads and and uh, training repeat times and all those miraculous things, but just those. And, and the other thing 
Brendan, you think about is that isn't it a shame that so many people we work with, you know, people like that are Olympians, take so long to learn those lessons that if we could get our athletes and our triathletes and master swimmers to really buy into this concept of train hard, then recover, if we could really get them to buy into that in their first season, what an incredible difference it would make to them. And even in terms of their longevity, I often think how many people are lost to the sport in that second year, third year, fourth year, or age group kids in their mid-teams because they're working so hard, but they've never really bought into the concept of recovery and regeneration and, and spending as much time on those areas of their preparation as they are actually working hard in the pool. It's it's a shame that people have got to go through so much trial and error, spend so much money at the physio before they go, okay, now I get it. Now the bomb drops. I understand how important recovery and regeneration is and then spend more focus on it. Another another place I've seen something similar is I've been doing a little bit of running lately and um, I ran a marathon a couple of weeks ago and I just – I use the walk-run method that um, when I interviewed Bobby McGee, um, Olympic run coach on here, and, uh, and you know him also, he, um, he was talking about the, the walk-run method for, for long-distance running where you might, what I did, for example, was run for 5K and then walk for 20 seconds uh, and then run for 5K, walk for 20 seconds, and, and I'd walk through all the age stations as well. And, I, and it just made, it made the biggest difference. I negative split by... Um, five minutes at the at the halfway mark, and and then with the Melbourne Ironman on the weekend, I see um, most most athletes that I know they they didn't use the walk run method at all. They they just ran for the entire thing, and you know maybe that's faster in in some cases, maybe it's not. But um, most people on that run blew up because the heat was it was it was really hot throughout the the entire run, and um, it's and when I've I've talked to people, and even when I sort of told people that when I ran the marathon was that they said, oh, you're not really doing the marathon if, you, if you're walking for some of it. But the point, you know, what's, what's the result you're looking for? It's, well, you, you want the fastest time. So whichever way it gets you there is really the best way to do it. So it's, um, I think people try and be, uh, try and go for the, 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 tougher, the tougher way to do it or the, um, I guess, what their, what their ego wants them to do and, and that might be run it. But what might actually save your legs and give you a quicker time is you know, a walk run with that. So it's um it's the same thing with um with that and then with with training and and, and not having enough recovery in between. Yeah, although mate, I've got to tell you a funny story that I was working with some triathletes in another state. Let's just be as polite as we possibly can. And it's a really funny thing happened. There was a guy said um, he was an Ironman athlete. Said, look, I'm I'm really frustrated that uh, I hear what you say about recovery and I make sure I have plenty of rest, particularly at T2 in my triathlon. So when I'm doing the transition from bike to run, he said, what I've, I've decided to do is I change my clothes, I have something to eat, something to drink, put on some Vaseline and I spend a bit of time recovering and getting myself ready before I just blast out a transition and I end up walking the last 10, 15K of the run and uh, everyone in the room who knew him very well started to laugh and they said, tell Wayne how long you sit down in T2 for. And uh, with a big smile on his face, he said, oh, my last race, it was 23 minutes. And, uh, 
So look, I'm all favour, all in favour of rest and recovery, but um, you know, maybe just measured with a little bit of common sense on race day. But yeah, that was a pretty good. He got the message, and yeah. he was extremely good at taking care of his body in T2 in the middle of the Ironman. But um, maybe just going a little bit too far. But that that Bobby McGee concept of run walk, I think that's outstanding because, as you rightly point out, just that little bit of a chance to recover heart rate and, and body just to stabilise a little bit and maybe get the opportunity to, to actually drink and get some fluid or maybe some fluid and some fuel in and have it get to where it needs to get rather than just sort of half a gulp and throwing the rest on your head. But it just to me seems like such a more intelligent way of doing it for the majority of punters. If you're on 235, 240, marathon pace at the end of an Ironman it's a different story and you've trained for it but for the majority of people it just makes so much sense yeah absolutely um with uh you've you've spoken about um paces versus um, we better get back to that at some stage mate I suppose yeah so do you want to um just talk a little bit about paces versus races the, the two types of um I guess swimmers and two types of triathletes that you tend to um tend to notice this is our problem 40 is there's probably about 40 from podcasts on this yeah well that's right we uh we should just uh you know record for the next eight hours or so and then it's, uh break it up you know there's eight podcasts for us there's probably that one there on training attitudes another one on recovery you know <laughs> um okay so just refocus yeah, oh, look, thanks, Brendan. What I've noticed a lot when I've been working particularly with triathletes and long-distance swimmers is that their obsession with swimming long distance as opposed to swimming fast as, for as long as possible is something that they need to really consider because within, within certain limits, you can train just about anybody of any age without a major health problem. You can train almost anyone to swim a K, 2Ks, 5Ks, probably even 10Ks. But if their goal is to compete, it's not as simple as just surviving for an hour or two or three in the water. What it is is how quickly can I go for the longest possible time? Then secondly is to be able to race when they need to. So what I usually describe this as is the difference between paces, P-A-C-E-R-S, and races, R-A-C-E-R-S. Most people want to be a pacer. They want to get in, do their work, be left more or less alone, a little bit of stroke instruction, but just get the work done up and down as much as they possibly can in the time allocated to training and get out. A racer is someone who's got the full set of skills to match the demands of any competitive situation that they're placed in. They're able to, in terms of open water swimming or the first leg is of a triathlon, they're able to race wide and then come in close when they're coming to a turning mark. They're able to sit at the back of a group and explode away if they need to. They're able to go wide of a group, kick away, and if they've got someone on their feet, explode away from them. They're able to change pace when and where they need to. They're able to change direction if they have to because they've practiced racing, not just pacing. And I think this is a great set of skills for all distance swimmers to, to develop. And when I say racing, what it comes down to 
is not just endurance, but it's how they blend speed, strength, and power into their training programs. Yeah, and that's um, we we work a lot on that type of uh, stuff with with this, my guys is um, the not it's not only the skills to you know to be able to race well, but it's it's having that that speed, strength, and power to to make a kick with your speed or to catch up to a group in front or to try and break away from someone. And um, a friend of mine, Sam Shepard, he's one of the best open water racers that I've seen because he's. Um, yeah, he's not necessarily the fastest swimmer in the water, but he's always got the best. He's always got the best skills uh, in the race, and uh, and he's just got an ability to to really ramp it up when he needs to. So, what um like what other times of the race or what other situations do you find that great speed, strength, and, and power uh, really plays an important part for open water swimming or, or triathlon racing? Well, there's a few. There's there's certainly looking at the start, being able to deal with getting quickly off the start, even if you're, you're porpoising and wading or combinations of those things to get yourself in water deep enough to swim and then being able to kick off very quickly. There's things like when you're trying to overtake or when you're going around other swimmers to be able to do it quickly and decisively and not be caught in a position. There's quite often swimmers will say, well, look, I'm going – uh, okay, in this pack, I want to go up to the next pack, and they just gradually pull away, and all of a sudden they turn around, and they've got the herd right on their feet, and they find they're dragging another 8, 10, 12 of their competitors along with them. So to be able to get away from a group and to make fast tactical moves when they have to, or conversely seeing someone that's in the next pack and think, well, look, if I can get up on their feet, I can – drag along a little bit with them and that'll put me in a better position and then I can make another tactical decision off that. One that we don't talk around a lot is that if you're a, a pacer and you're just used to knocking off 130, 140, 150 uh, pace 100 metre efforts with your heart rate at up around 70%, 80% and all of a sudden you're in open water and there's a rip or a current or a bit of a storm or strong wind, you've got to work a lot harder to maintain that pace. Your heart rate will be a lot higher at the same pace because of the conditions. So you might need to be able to have a little bit of speed and strength to maintain good quality stroke and nice rhythm and nice pace until you get to a turning marker and then the wind might be behind you or the current might be behind you, the surf conditions might then be in your favour. And then, of course, right at the end with the finish is being able to make a decisive break from a pack by getting out of the water just in front and getting away. And particularly in draft legal triathlon now is that there's the importance and the absolute desperation to be on that front pack and getting out with the lead swimmers so when they start to work together as a, a cycle group, as a cycle pack, that you're up there with them so that last 50 metres, 100 metres of the swim cannot is not just about getting out of the water fast or having a fast swim leg. It's a very important tactical consideration that may then allow you to get out with the lead swimmers and then that becomes the lead riders and then eventually that becomes the people that will fight out the finish over the run. Awesome. And what, um, what do you see as some of the main uh, principles or, or things to consider when people are 
training to to develop their speed. So let's say someone's swimming a couple times a week and they want to add one or two speed sessions or speed sets into their training. What are some of the sort of rules of thumb that you follow when you when you're riding up a speed set for your swimmers? Yeah, look, this is a this is a bit of a controversial one and a a really funny one that I know when I've spoken to a lot of the the old heads, the older swimmers and coaches that were doing speed training in the 70s or 80s, their belief was that speed training might be a set like 2050s on the minute. Now, what we know now is that that sets more of a speed endurance or a threshold type set for most swimmers and that genuinely uh, developing speed is about sprinting at high speed with good technique over very, very short distances, 10 metres, 15 metres, 20 metres, maybe up to 30 metres, but at maximum speed and not doing too many of them. This is, a, this is this something that's really important with speed work because there's a high nervous system component in your body's capacity to generate speed and to, to learn how to build speed. We know that your nervous system fatigues relatively quickly doing this type of work. We don't want a lot of lactic acid either. We really want short, explosive, very, very fast swimming, not too many, and over relatively short distances. So sets that I like are things like six times 50, where the first 30 is a real explosion, great speed, good technique, and then switch off at the 30-meter mark and just cruise and relax a nice, easy 20. Or you might do a 50 where the first 25 metres are explosive and very, very fast, great kick, maximum speed. And then the next 25, similarly, relaxed, long, easy and smooth. So they're the types of sets, but very, very fast, not too many, plenty of recovery between them. I love it. And uh, and coming from the, I guess, swimmer's perspective is, um, when I was, you know, when I was doing sessions, that one thing that would really annoy me when I was trying to increase my speed for swimmers, I mean, my my sort of best distance was two hundred to four hundred, and um, I never quite, you know, I was never great at the at fifties. It just it just wasn't quite for me, and um, you know, but but when I was trying to sort of turn that around and build some speed, be nothing worse than coaches giving you what was classified as a speed set. But it would be, like you said, something like 2050s on the minute where you expect to go fast for every single one. Whereas, you know, it's not training your actual top end speed. That's, that's a threshold set. And, you know, it's not going to help you with your first 15, 20 metres on your 50 freestyle or your 50 fly. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's, and now as a coach, when I'm giving speed stuff like this, give, give the swimmers enough time to rest, get their heart rate down, to reset, and just to kind of clear their mind so that, every single effort that they're doing that they can go in at that really high intensity and then recover and give them time after that. So it's, um, yeah, nothing worse than giving them too much to, to try and do to, to keep that high intensity for the whole thing. i tell you a set that we've been doing lately with the triathletes and the surf swimmers as well is there's an idea that we pinched from one of the top US swim coaches called Lazak 25s where the swimmers – and you've got to be careful, obviously, with safety issues and make sure the deck's clear and as dry as you can get it. But we've been doing some sets where they walk or very slowly jog to the side of the pool and then dive in and sprint flat out over the first 15 metres with that little bit of extra momentum. 
And they love doing that and they can go very, very quickly and they can go a lot quicker than they can from a push start or from a dive start. There's a, so that little bit of extra safety you've got to be aware of. Just be very careful with it. But if you can get across that, the swimmers love it. They hit the water like Superman or Supergirl and, and uh, they're already going very quickly and they can generate a lot of speed very, very, uh, very well and they do love it. So we, they're just called Lazak. 25s named after the great U.S. sprinter, uh, Lazak, who apparently used to incorporate a lot of those into his training program. So they're a lot of fun. Yeah, and we uh, we posted a video on EffortlessSwimming.com of Natalie Coughlin training. There's a great video that uh, one of the, I think it was Outdoor Magazine in the States, they put together this five or six minute video on Natalie Coughlin's training for the, um, for the next Olympics. And that was one of the things she was doing in there. She was taking a couple of steps, getting that extra speed off the dive and then sprinting to 25. And um, she was doing that with a, a few like Anthony Irvine and, and some of the other US swimmers. So um, a really good idea if you've got the space there at the pool. What, um, what sort of stuff do you have your athletes do or what do you recommend for athletes to build strength in the pool? Yeah, trying to find ways of actually overloading the swimmers is always a bit of a challenge for coaches because – just of the medium that we're in. We've seen some really ingenious devices over the years where coaches have bought buckets just going to the local Bunnings or the local hardware store, buying a cheap plastic bucket, tying a rope around the handle, getting uh, the other end of the rope tied around the swimmer's waist and a few little holes in the bottom of the bucket. Otherwise, it's just impossible to move and the swimmer tows the bucket up and down the pool and that's worked quite well. Some of the big sporting manufacturers, the swimwear manufacturers, have developed some really interesting ideas around things like parachutes. I know that some of the triathlete coaches like to do things like get the swimmers to wear old running shoes and pull a, a towel tied to their waist by, again, by a short piece of rope up and down the pool. So it's been a bit of a, been a, bit of a creative challenge for swimming coaches and triathlon coaches to come up with ways of progressively overloading swimmers with some sort of strength training device, something that we just put together with our program and uh, we've been lucky that Heart Sport, the manufacturer in Brisbane, have helped us out put together is a towing sponge. And what that is, it's a, it's a length of sponge that is uh, wrapped inside or it's secured inside some mesh which helps to protect the sponge that's then connected to the swimmer by a length of cord with a Velcro strap at the end. The swimmers tie that to their waist, and again, they pull this tow device up and down the pool to try and build their strength. So the general thing with towing is to increase the overload to swimming muscles in some way other than just swimming up and down the pool. A couple of little things you've got to be careful of, though, is that there are some really interesting devices on the market and some of them are very big. And what I say to swimmers, if you decide to go down the path of trying to develop strength or build strength, don't be tempted to go too big too early. That if you've got a very big towing device, a big parachute, a very large bucket, or even the large size of the swimming toe sponge that we put together, that if, if your stroke has to be compromised, so you've got a short stroke or your head positions change as a result, it's probably too big for you. It was a great story, I think, was our best young surf swimmer when we were developing the sponges. 
he said, look, um, I'm happy to help out. So we had a prototype that's about four times bigger than the one we've currently got on the market. And um, this guy's one of the strongest young surf swimmers I've ever seen, and he couldn't swim more than two or three strokes. So we learned very quickly you've got to find ways of building strength which at the same time don't compromise the quality of the athlete's swimming stroke. Yeah, absolutely. And it's the same sort of um, concept when you're having swimmers use paddles for the first time. I mean, we use the engine swim paddles, which are the best ones that I've come across. And, I mean, I, I used to use the, the largest size. Now I've just gone back to the medium just because I, th- I find that little bit of, ex- of less uh, stress and, and pressure through the shoulders um, is, is just, just a little bit better. So you know, as much as I'd love to be using the, the large ones and people, um, I know, you know some people sort of see it as like a um, like something to sort of you know, brag about or it's like an ego thing, but um, you know, be, be happy with starting small and then building that because there's nothing worse than going too hard too early and you know, your, your shoulders can't handle it or your you're not building that that strength and that power up from um, if you, if you're coming from nowhere, then it's it's you're going to injure yourself basically. So um, yeah, definitely don't don't try and go too big at the start. I've actually ordered one of the um, the ones that you've designed, one of the uh, swim toe sponges, one of, one of the sponges. So uh, yeah, I'm, it'll probably be coming this week. So I'm looking forward to to using. It. I remember using them, uh, using sponges. You know, back when I was swimming when I was a teenager, and I used to love that sort of work, putting on some paddles and um, you know swimming some hundreds and two hundreds with it. And it's um, just that little bit of extra resistance. You can you can really feel the extra strength that you develop from it. So I mean, if so, a combination of speed and strength is your your power. What um what are some things that swimmers can do to to increase their their power? So what sort of things should they be doing in in training for it? Well, as you, you correctly point out, it's a combination. Power is a combination of speed and strength. Is what's the most amount of strength that I can apply, or most amount of force that I can apply to the water in the shortest possible time? So there's a technical aspect, and there's where I think the paddles and I love paddles as well. I think for me the main reason to use paddles is to teach athletes that real sense of applying and maintaining pressure on the palms of their hands throughout their swim stroke. So to me it's very much about certainly in power development trying to use and incorporate paddles into their swim stroke. Again, paddles that are not that much bigger than their normal hand size to me are always ideal or even a little bit smaller. But to really think about when they enter the water and their, their fingertips, just uh, their arms are fully extended, they press down very lightly and very gently right on their fingertips with the paddles and immediately and early get that sense of pressure on the paddle and then getting into that high elbow position with their elbow staying as close as possible to the surface of the water in that early high elbow, that early high catch position, and just maintaining that same feel of pressure on the paddle right through until they release towards the bottom of their stroke. So to keep that, and then if they can overload with a bucket or a sponge or with uh, a parachute, some sort of resistance device, and and try to to maintain pressure on the water while moving their, their arms quickly and 
pulling a, a towing device or while pulling some sort of resistance through the water, that's going to make them a lot more powerful. Another way that I've found has been quite good is that I just call these rhythm threes or uh, rhythm three freestyles with paddles on is to push off in a really tight streamline and take three very long, very fast strokes. So they go one, two, three, and then they get on their side and continue to kick for around five, ten seconds, and then one, two, three, very long, very fast, very powerful strokes, and then back on the other side, kicking in that lateral position, kicking and flowing along, then one, two, three, very long, very powerful strokes with paddles on, keeping pressure on the paddle all the way through the stroke. And I think that's a really good power development uh, technique. Three strokes, five at absolute most, high speed with paddles, with pressure all the way through the stroke is a great way to develop power in stroke. Yeah, I like that one. We do a, a similar one for, for sprint freestyle is they're basically on their side, not at 90 degrees, but at about 45 degrees, sculling with the hand out the front and the other hand, ha, other hands just by their side. And then they basically throw over and take one stroke and they're just looking to get as much power from that one stroke as possible. But I think, uh, you know, by adding another two strokes, making it three strokes, um, you get that little bit extra um, development with your with your power there. So, yeah, that's a, um, that's a really good one. What, um, I, like, I like that one too, Brendan, because then they can start to also feel that connection between their hands and their hips. So if you've got three strokes and we know that certainly backstroke freestyle, that connection with really technically efficient and very powerful elite level swimmers, that connection they feel between hip and hands is just so critically important. So I found that by doing the three that they're able to really get that sense of hand-hip connection, which is so critically important for swimmers going from those early stages of swimming relatively flat to being very efficient and very effective with their hands and hips connection throughout their stroke. Yeah, I like that. And um, I think it's it's also good for developing this sprint freestyle technique. So, I mean, obviously the biggest change when someone's going from, say, a 50 and 100-meter freestyle technique is they're more... Uh, symmetrical with their timing so as one hand's catching the other hand's exiting the water whereas with that longer distance stroke it's a little bit more catch-up type of freestyle so um, I mean for someone like myself I was more distance from growing up doing a drill like the ones we just mentioned is um, is really good for helping develop that 1500 type of stroke because I use yeah I was just used to doing the that longer style of freestyle but, um, you know, for, for sprinting, it, it's not great. So um, to be able to develop that power and, and slightly different timing, um, there, there's some good drills for it. Yeah, it's a bit sneaky too, isn't it? It's something we don't tell the swimmers or the triathletes that that drill doubles as a kicking drill, but we better not tell them or they won't do it. <laughs> it's uh, when, I was, when I was coaching at, uh, at this clinic yesterday with, um, with Mitch Patterson, he was, he was in the water demonstrating the, the drills and he he said to me he made sure he, he kicked as much as he possibly could for these drills so that the so that the guys who were going to be doing the drills would would do the same thing uh, because I think subconsciously they they see him kicking and so they do the same thing whereas you know if you tell them to do it um, they may not it may not make a difference but as long as 
they see him kicking a lot, they're going to do the same thing. So it's, um, yeah, it's, uh, it, it's, it's something that I, it's easy to, to not kick a lot, especially as a, a master swimmer or a triathlete. But, um, I mean, I was talking about this with a, another one of my athletes is he was asking how much should he be kicking when he's doing some 100s and 200s of freestyle at, um, just sort of moderate pace ones. And, um, you know, there's sort of two ways to go about it. One, you can, you can just kick small, you can conserve energy or you can kick really hard. And although that might actually make you slower or might make you more tired for that 100 or 200, uh, it's going to develop a kick for when it comes to racing, it's going to pay off. So yeah, sometimes it's more efficient to, to not kick quite as much for that longer distance swimming. But, you know, if, if you really want to develop your kick, why not kick that, that little bit harder for some of those, um, some of those 200s in your training and, um, and get the most out of it? Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. I don't think there's any point in doing a lot of slow kick. In, in fact, I've been watching some really interesting work being done by some of the elite sprint groups where they're, they're not doing a lot of slow kick. The kick they're actually doing is all relative to percentage of target race pace. So what, what I mean by that is they're saying, all right, if my target race pace is 130, that's where I want to end up, then my kick sets will be 125% of that pace. And then as they get a little more effective or more efficient in their kick, they go, all right, well, now I'll try to make my kick sets 120% of my race swim race pace. And can I get down to anything quicker than about 110, 112% of your swimming race pace is pretty quick because it then has a, a wonderful follow-on effect that as your kick sets are getting faster and faster and their speed relative to your target race pace getting faster and faster and improving further, and obviously your swim time gets quicker. And I think that's a really good little thing to throw at swimmers to say, okay, guys, here's your target race pace, and I want all your kick work done no slower than 115% of that target swim pace. And to make kick sets very relative and very targeted to what they're trying to achieve with their swim work. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Especially, I mean, for for those shorter distance events, 50s, 100s, 200s, it just, kick is, is just so important. And, um, you know, don't, the people with the fastest kick or the best kick are typically the ones who are who are going to be winning those races. So, um, I mean, watching watching Mitch swim yesterday at, at the clinic, he um, just the... Uh, just the speed that he gets just from from that kick is um it's like i i like the uh the analogy not the analogy the um the way it's kind of explained when you see a sprinter swim is it should be business in the front so their catch their entry all that should be all very clean and then it's party at the back it should be like <laughs> that that rooster tail um <laughs> that the, the, the kicks generating that that splash out the back and it's um and it's just awesome to watch it if you've never seen an Olympian or a very high-end swimmer sprinting um, close up. It's um, it's quite incredible how much water they actually move when they're when they're going fast. Man, I think one really useful tip too for triathletes and master swimmers and all swimmers is to have some of these goals in place around the kick because everyone gets hung up in what's your four hundred time or what's your one thousand time, what's your fifty pb. You very rarely have people say, well, my swim time PB is 
127 and my kick times are 140. There, there doesn't seem to be enough maybe pride or enough focus on high-speed kick and the achievement of kick goals. And, and I mean, even something as simple as if your 100 swim PB is 125, I think a great standard is can you kick between 70 and 75 metres in your 100-metre swimming PB time? And, you know, try and get athletes to take some real pride and say, you know, stick their chest out and write in their, their goal book. Someone says, well, what's your best times for swimming? And they say, well, I, I swim 200 free in, you know, 315 and I can kick 200 free in 407. And I think you can, you can develop that mindset where athletes have real pride, not just in swim, but also in kick or maybe some other skill elements. And then it takes on a real value to them. Yeah, I like that. We used to do a similar thing um, with our kick when I, when I was a teenager. Is um, We wouldn't quite do 100 times. We'd do it every now and then. But every Friday or every Saturday, I think it was, we'd do a, an 800 kick time trial. And uh, I was training for 400 IMs at the time. So I'd do 200 fly, 200 back, 200 breast, 200 freestyle kick. And I think we did it for probably six weeks. And I think I dropped somewhere from, it was like, a minute 20 to a minute 30 over the course of six weeks off that 800 kick time. And as a result, I mean, my 400 AM time dropped dramatically and I had one of the best races I've ever had. Uh, and I, you know, and I, I could feel it in the races. It was really my kick that, that got me through that. So it's um, for pool swimmers and, and, and to an extent, open water swimmers and triathletes, it, it really depends on the distance. But um, definitely for pool swimmers, it... it um, is so important to, to have a great kick. It is, and, and I think another great phrase I've, I've heard and have used regarding kick is that when you're looking at a race, that your arms take you out, but your legs bring you back. And I think that so much effort and intent is made by using arms and what's happening with stroke rating and distance first stroke and stroke technique that I think in that first part of the race – a lot of swimmers ignore what's really happening with their legs and then they start to fatigue and they're thinking, man, what am I going to get home? But I think a lot of those sets where you really focus on building kick in the last 15, 20% of your race, so important. So as that upper body starts to fatigue and as you're starting to tie up a little bit at the top end, so your arms have taken you out to halfway, then be thinking about, well, now my legs can bring me home, my legs can drive my body to the finish. Yeah, definitely. All right, mate, we better wrap this up before we turn into pumpkins. Yes, I know, mate. I've really enjoyed it as always. Yeah, me too. And um, before we go, where can people um, read some of your articles? Because you're one of the best one of the best articulators and one of the best writers about uh, swimming and triathlon. And um, you put out a lot of great articles. So where can people find those? And where can people find the, the sponges that you're talking about, the resistance sponges? Well, the resistance sponges, uh, so we've gone into partnership and developed those with Heart Sport, who are an Australian manufacturer, I'm proud to say, and I'm really happy to be associated with them. They actually make the sponges in Brisbane, and they're 100% Australian-owned and developed products. So just by searching for Heart Sport, H-A-R-T Sport Australia, out of Brisbane and going through to swimming training aids, and it's the swim toe sponge and something we're very proud of. And I'm sure that anybody tries it, 
will have a lot of fun out of it and out of using it. And uh, it's a really fantastic product. Apart from that, I do a lot of writing for Swimming World, which is a leading source of swimming information and ideas in the United States. And I've got a page on that called Wayne's Water World, www Wayne's Water World, at the Swimming World website. And that's something I've really enjoyed doing. So Wayne's World, Wayne's World, party on, excellent. Awesome. And I, and I know you've written uh, two, well, I guess one controversial article um, recently and then a sort of follow-up one to that was uh, things that swimming parents do that coaches can't stand. And then I, you did a reverse one, which was things that swimming coaches do that swimming parents can't stand. So um, they're, uh, they're very entertaining reads for, um, uh, for anyone who, who's keen to check those out. I don't think anything polarizes the swimming community more than that topic. And it was interesting that I got a lot of very positive mail, but I think hate mail's a little bit too strong, but I certainly got some feedback that wasn't all positive from both articles. But, hey, we've got to get these issues out there and people at least talking about them and discussing about them before we're going to get anything to change. So it's all good. I think Oscar Wilde, the great Australian swimming coach, once said, the only thing worse than being talked about is not being talked about. So, yep, a little <laughs> bit of controversy doesn't hurt. Going for the uh, the Kim Kardashian kind of uh, <laughs> just yeah, get uh, just do you know do something that will get people talking. But uh, no, yeah. I think it's uh, I think it's great what you're doing. So um, yeah, I'm looking forward to to using the the sponge when it comes along. And um, thanks again for being on the podcast. This is the second time, and no doubt you'll we'll um, have you back on because uh, we could chat for hours about this stuff. Thanks, mate. Keep up the great work. Thanks, mate. You too. Thanks for joining us on the Effortless Swimming Podcast. To get transcriptions, bonus videos, and to be the first to hear about new episodes, go to swimmingpodcast.com.